Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 65, The Clicks. The death of Yuan Shikai in April 1916 was met with no small amount of relief from the rest of the nation. His dictatorship and attempt at a monarchy had led to disaffection across all of China in just a handful of years, and his passing was met with the hope that the central government in Beijing would operate in the future with respect to provincial and local interests, and not in an imperious fashion. And that certainly appeared to be the case in mid-1916. The new president, Li Yuanhong, set out to conciliate all the factions that had taken up arms against Beijing and restore a sense of unity in the nation. He knew he lacked Yuan's power base to assert a dictatorship of his own and didn't set out on that course. The provincial authorities were heartened and resumed managing their own affairs as they had before Yuan had tightened his grip. There was one very important problem to this new status quo, however. During Yuan's time in power, a number of men didn't just achieve power in a single province, but had grown power bases that encompassed several. That would include men like Yuan's old subordinates, Duan Shirui and Feng Guozheng. It would also include Zheng Zhulin, who settled into ruling all of Manchuria. These men would be the first major warlords, men who would define China for over the next decade. They operated the highest levels of national politics that would come to amass ever larger armies, backed by the resources of what were effectively their own private kingdoms. Uh, they were, in their own ways, also nationalists, patriots, men who wanted to enhance the power and prestige of China. It was just they wanted to guide the nation in their own way, which is to say, with themselves in charge. The nature of the warlords that we will be encountering is varied and, quite frankly, confusing. There was no formal system to organize them, just that, in the absence of central authority, they emerged to take advantage of the power vacuum. That at the highest levels, they jockeyed to cloak themselves with the veneer of central authority to justify their feuds with their rivals. I'm going to spend a good bit of this episode doing a broad overview of how warlords worked in China during these days, and how the first groups got going. And when I talk about warlords, they weren't just a handful of big players either. They were all over the nation in every province. So while I'm going to focus on the big fish, they had legions of small fries under them, striving to gain and keep influence, just on a smaller scale. As pretty much a rule, they were military men and maintained a network of patronage that provided their power base. At the lowest levels, these guys operated in some locality where they managed a patchwork of counties or towns. In some provinces, especially the south, like Yunnan and Guangxi, clusters of warlords would form alliances that would have nominal leaders, but would have their own ecosystems that had to be carefully managed by the most powerful leaders in the group. Then there were warlords who managed to secure personal rule over an entire province. A good example of a warlord managing their own province solo would be Yan Zhishan in Shanxi. Despite being so close to the future battles over Beijing, he would mind his own affairs and mostly isolated himself from the goings-on of the bigger fish, electing to be satisfied with Shanxi alone and refraining from trying to expand elsewhere. He instead spent his time developing his impoverished home, seeking not just to enhance his own personal power, but also to improve the material and educational conditions of his people, which for a warlord was downright admirable, and probably why he earned the sobriquet the model warlord even if his efforts were stunted by isolation and a lack of resources. That he was able to do this more or less up to the final communist victory in 1949 
Sparkson is kind of a special case, as usually warlords were either smaller and integrated into a bigger alliance, or larger ones in control of said alliances. Speaking of, those big ones grew to fairly impressive sizes, especially the primary groups we'll be covering in the northern and central parts of China proper. And just a little terminology, these warlord alliances, both at the national level and provincial ones, are referred to as cliques. Yes, you heard me correctly. Clicks. If you're thinking high school pettiness, you are not too far off. Clicks, where they existed, vary just as the warlords that comprised them. In the north, there arose three primary cliques that each vied against each other. The first one of significance was also the one that set off the scramble of military and political officials organized amongst themselves. Duan, being an old hand in first the Beiyang army and then China's national government under Yuan, was already well-connected all across the nation. People were used to reporting to him. And when Yuan died and the veneer of constitutional government was restored, Yuan managed to secure the position of premier, which effectively put him in charge of the government and national assembly. There was still President Li, but lacking his own personal army, he was not allowed the same level of power Yuan had possessed. Duan would form what was known as the Anfu Club, which was effectively a political machine with contacts around the country with the goal of dominating the National Assembly and government ministries and using them as devices to advance his own personal power. Duan personally lacked the personal charisma to inspire the nation's elites, so he thought it more effective to just bind together as many of them as possible via a web of alliances and common interests. They would come to have sway over not just the government, but the provinces of Shanxi, Northern Jili, Shandong, Anhui, Zhejiang, Fuizhan, and part of Hunan as well. This national-level organization, though, would spur rivals to emerge, as many did not wish to work with Duan or were left out of his organization. His eventual locking up of the government sphere would also encourage his rivals to take their feud with him beyond politics and into armed fighting, which caused the Anfu Club to evolve in the future from simply being a political alliance into a military eventually transitioning into a group called the Anhui Club. It was called this as that was Duan's home province and a base of his power, although the two terms were still used interchangeably, so Anfu Club came first but evolved into the Anhui Clique. The second clique in the north of China was formed more or less as a response to the Anhui Clique, because, you know, the best way to force everybody to make a super team is as a response to another super team. This was called the Zhili Clique after the province containing the capital, Beijing. This group coalesced around Feng, but as he was getting on in his years, the most notable members were going to be another pair of military. Cao Kun would eventually rise to the overall leadership position, and his second-in-command, Wu Peifu, was considered the primary captain within the armies of the group. As the entire purpose of the organization was to provide a safety net for those left out of the rival Anhui clique, and on top of that, the founder was Duan's historical rival, northern China quickly became locked into a factional power struggle as the two groups fight against each other over government appointments and power in the individual provinces. The Zhili clique would come to command the provinces of Henan, Hubei, part of Hunan, Jiangsu, and appropriately enough, part of Zhili itself. The Fengtian clique in the northeast of China was the last of the major northern cliques. It organized itself around Zhang Zhulin, 
everyone's favorite soldier of fortune. In addition to securing Manchuria for himself, he had also begun the process of developing it in the years after the First Revolution. You see, in the Qing days, Manchuria was kept apart from the rest of China, as it had been the home base of the Manchu people who had set up that dynasty. At least initially to the Qing, China had been a conquest, and Manchuria was home to them. So, strictly speaking, Han Chinese were restricted in going. However, towards the end of the Qing Empire, this started falling by the wayside and people were allowed to emigrate there. Once Zheng rose to power in the region, he started to actively recruit Han Chinese to move there to set up new farms, mines, and industries. This resulted in almost a doubling of land under cultivation in Manchuria and an industrial boom while the rest of China fell into chaos. His big advantage was that he had a large territory with a rapidly developing industry that was relatively distant from China proper. Yes, he directly bordered the other big factions in the north, but to strike at his capital in the city of Mukden, uh, modern-day Shenyang, an attacker would have to cover a vast stretch of hostile ground. It simply wasn't feasible for his rivals to invade Manchuria. And then he was also a client of the Japanese. A tense relationship at times, and one, if you remember from the previous miniseries, did not end up well for him. But during the good times, it meant that he had access to Japanese investment and a protector that kept other regional powers, like say the Soviets to the north, off his back which meant that he didn't have to worry about being attacked from outside China. He could focus his attentions in one direction, on Beijing. So unlike his rivals, his home base was a single, secure fortress and not a patchwork of provinces intermingled with his opponents. His foreign connections and the economic boom he oversaw also meant that he had quite the financial resources to equip his army with modern arms that didn't just include machine guns and artillery, but gradually planes and tanks as well. He was, in short, not a guy to be messed with, even if he was a little bit off to the side compared to Duan and Fang. And these groups didn't stay static, either. Alliances would shift, some groups would dissolve, new ones would rise, and we'll be covering all that. One important thing to note, though, is that while these cliques operated independently of each other, they weren't breakaway states. None of the warlords, even the ones in the western expanses of China, were attempting to leave. They all recognized themselves as normal parts of the nation, and most looked towards Beijing as their capital. Sun Yat-sen would eventually return to southern China and set up his own counter-government there, which would attract support from the Yunnan and Guangxi warlord cliques, but even then, he was simply claiming to be the legitimate government of China, the one before Yuan grabbed power, not a breakaway. This adherence to the idea that China was indivisible meant that even in the most protracted bouts of chaos, the Beijing government was the outside-facing one. So, even as the central government's power shriveled into nothing, it was still an important prize to win, as whoever controlled Beijing could claim to speak on behalf of China to the world. Although even this idea would be contradicted, as even though most warlords accepted the Beijing government as the national one, they individually also kept contacts with foreign powers. They weren't bold enough to make open treaties without controlling Beijing, but all of them who had some proximity to the foreigners would strike understandings and commercial bargains with them. The biggest example I've given so far was Zhang's relationship with Japan, but others, especially ones that controlled coastal provinces containing treaty ports, had to deal with outside representatives on some level or another. The conduct of the warlords also varied widely. The smaller ones often functioned as bandit kings, 
exploiting their localities for every bit of wealth they could extract. Some, like Zhang and Yan, would put a lot of energy into developing their economies, while others left it totally in the hands of the businessmen attached to their clique. One thing that governed every warlord's behavior at every level, though, was the pressure to support their armed forces. Technically, most every warlord's army was also part of the national army. That, of course, didn't mean much. The national government didn't have the money to pay for all those troops, and the quality of them varied widely. Many were only basically equipped with rifles and had next to no training. Oftentimes, the major warlords would rely on a dependable, well-equipped corps of soldiers with a larger mass padding out the numbers. But regardless of those soldiers' qualities, they all had to be paid to some extent. Life in China during those days was hard, constantly getting harder, and service in a warlord's army offered at least the prospect of stability. But it also put increased pressure on the warlords as well. In order to pay for all those troops, they had to collect money and materiel from their provinces, which became ever more burdensome as the size of the armies increased. And then there was the issue of the officers in the army. Once you commanded your own unit, even if it was just, uh, say, a couple hundred men, technically you were like a mini-warlord already. The troops under you would obey you first, the next commander up the ladder second. And everybody was aware of this chain of loyalty, which extended all the way to the very top. Everybody in a position of command had to be kept happy. And as the cliques became bigger, they became more complex. And the potential rewards to be doled out all the greater. The low-level guys could typically be bought off cash bonuses, or maybe some land, or some kind of interest in a business. Nothing earth-shattering, just a little show of appreciation. That show of appreciation got more expensive the further up you got. In a lot of cases, the various alliances were further cemented by elevating personal friends or even arranging marriage alliances. And at the highest levels of leadership, let's say, for instance, Duan or Fang, they controlled entire provinces and could make government appointments, which put their immediate subordinates in line for stuff like provincial governorships or national ministries. And if those subordinates attained such promotions, then they basically could become forces to be reckoned with on their own. This made high-level rewards very dangerous for the giver, who had to be sure he could count on the person being promoted, because if you messed up, the empowered subordinate could stab you in the back. If the leader of a clique scorned someone, was probably only a matter of time before they became unruly or even traitorous. Keep in mind that subordinates had officers of their own to manage and keep happy. If, for example, a mid-level officer got denied an upgrade to, say, provincial governor, not only did he lose out on the wealth he could have gotten from that position himself, but also the officers under him as well, threatening his own status as the even lower officers got annoyed at their own lack of enrichment. It really was an unsustainable system, but due to China's wealth and size, the cycle would keep going for a depressing long time. But the breakout of civil war among the warlords didn't happen all at once, so let's get back to where we were in late 1916, as President Li was trying to restore some normalcy. Li's position was fragile, as again he lacked his own army, and he didn't have the connections of Sei Duan and Fang. His strategy was to champion the cause of the Constitution and the Republic in general, which was quite a turn as he had never supported either during the revolution itself and had happily cooperated with Yuan during most of his dictatorship. Contradictions aside, it was probably the only thing he could do to maintain his own position in the face of men who held the real levers of power. 
He attempted to both placate and divide Duan and Fang by supporting Duan becoming premier and Fang becoming the new vice president, but that only let them operate freely in the halls of government. Uh, this would convince Lee to try and start building his own faction, and he reached out to other members of the Beiyang army who hadn't been recruited into the emerging cliques. Sadly for Lee, it was too little too late, and the most prominent officer he got on his side was Zheng Zhun, whom I mentioned two weeks ago as the guy who sacked Nanjing during the Second Revolution. He was an open monarchist, which didn't bode well for his loyalty to the newly Republican Lee. He was also kind of a think-outside-the-box kind of guy, as between September 1916 and January 1917, he organized a trio of warlord conclaves to try and hash out a government among those military leaders purely among themselves, which meant cutting out the national government. Duan managed to shut those efforts down, but it showed Zhang wasn't interested in playing by any rules and was a terrible ally to have. Matters were not helped that Li and Duan personally didn't like each other much, and the two began to clash over the issue of China joining World War I on the side of the Entente. The debate had good points on both sides. Duan wanted to join in in order to get a seat at the victor's table and be involved in the decisions of peace that came after. Li thought the war wasn't any of China's business and would be a waste of resources at such a vulnerable hour. Duan's position was weaker than it might have been at that time, as he was correctly seen as being on the take from the Japanese and way too close to them. This relationship started because Duan had an ulterior motive for entering World War I. He wanted to use the opportunity of war footing to build a new army that was personally loyal to him. The government, though, didn't have the money, so he approached the Japanese for loans. Starting in January 1917, the Teruchi government in Tokyo started using go-betweens to arrange the transfer of funds. The money was ostensibly to be used to help develop China, but really it was there for Duan to help build up his personal military. The loans were also supposed to be secret between Duan and Japan, uh, but that was something that couldn't be kept quiet for long. Duan's position also wasn't helped by the fact that he had a domineering attitude and few actual friends, and that by this early stage his Anfu club wasn't quite as dominant as it would become. This all came to a head when in early May 1917, the Japanese loans became public and opened Duan to public attack from within the National Assembly. After all, the Japanese were not terribly popular at the time, what with the whole 21 demands and just everything else that had happened in the past. Anyway, Lee took the opening and dismissed Duan on May 23rd. Duan left in a huff for Tianjin, and started reaching out to his military allies for support in toppling Li. It looked like yet another civil war was in the offing, then something weirder happened. Zheng Jun offered to mediate between Duan and Li, which was a refreshing change of pace, all things considered. However, it all turned out to be a ruse, as Zheng rolled into Beijing on June 14, 1917, and announced he was putting Puyi, the last Qing emperor, back on the throne. Remember that from the time of the Double Ten Revolution, Puyi had been just been chilling in the Forbidden City. Now, Zhang had managed to organize some other warlords to join in with them, but unfortunately those supporters were more interested in getting rid of Li than in re-establishing the Qing. So when push came to shove, most of Zhang's allies in this little endeavor had gotten what they wanted up front and saw no reason to resist the inevitable counterattack. Li's own position was quite hopeless, as Duan became the point man to head off this Qing restoration. He took the opportunity to organize all the other major warlords against Li and forced the sitting president to dissolve the parliament that had turned against him. 
in the coming counterstrike against Zhang, Duan would not bother with partners when leading the charge in glorious defense of the Republic. Back in Beijing, Zheng's rickety base of support fell apart immediately, and he was obliged to flee. Having seized power for themselves, no way were the warlords going back to the old empire. Duan entered the capital in triumph, Zhang went into exile in a concession city, Li resigned as president and was replaced by Feng, and Pu Yi was shuffled back into the Forbidden City. Don't worry, he'll be brought back out again. Duan capped his win by rigging the National Assembly elections of 1918 in favor of candidates from his Anfu club, nullifying the nation's parliament as a source of opposition to it. But where one source of trouble was taken care of, another did not hesitate to present itself as Sun Yat-sen again poked his way back into the story. Soon arrived in the capital of Guangdong province, Guangzhou, in July 1917, and by August had a rudimentary counter-government established, even going so far as to invite the original members of the National Assembly to pack their bags and head south to join. By September 19th, he was leader of a southern alliance consisting of the provinces of Guangdong, Weizhou, Yunnan, and Sichuan. He didn't actually control these places, just the local warlords rallied to his banner in defiance of the government in Beijing. Soon was also notably getting some financial backing from the Germans, as Duan had finally dragged China into World War I on August 14th. Duan, fiercely aggressive when it came to internal military matters, ordered an invasion of the rebellious southern provinces. This was in turn opposed by President Feng, who was sympathetic to southern demands for autonomy and suspicious of Duan taking the region over for himself. Duan ignored Fang and sent his part of the Beiyang army off anyway, which was what prompted Fang to really get his Zhili clique going. In the meantime, Duan's first move was to send his army to the Hunan province, which was centrally located in the south and made a fine base to operate out. Complications quickly emerged, though, when the local armies opposed this northern incursion and fought Duan's troops when they arrived in August 1917. Duan leaned on his commander on the scene, Wu Peifu, to pacify the province, which he did by spring 1918. Attentive listeners might have recognized that I mentioned Wu Peifu earlier in this episode as a major leader of the Zhili clique, Duan's rival. So why was Wu fighting for Duan? Well, at this point, both he and his commanding officer, Cao Kun, were allied with Duan. But keep in mind what I said about failing to reward your subordinates. Wu assumed that since he had pacified Hunan, that he would get to be appointed the new governor. Instead, he was passed over in favor of someone closer to Duan. This left Wu ready to defect to new management. Cao Kun also was alarmed by the move, since Wu was his second in command, and interpreted Duan's snubbing of Wu as a threat to his own position as governor of the Zhili province. This drove both men to look towards Fang's Zhili clique as an alternative which was also around the time when the costs of Duan's southern campaign forced him to take out more loans from the Japanese, which went again to empowering his own faction militarily, which meant that anyone left out had all the more reason to join the Zhili clique just as a matter of personal security. This even started attracting Zhang and the Feng Tian clique's attentions as Duan started spreading his influence into Outer Mongolia, perilously close to Manchuria. Warlord politics, folks you always have to be careful about whose toes you step on. It was also at the end of 1917 that all of Duan's alienating decisions came back to haunt him. The problems in taking the Hunan province caused increased friction with Fang, who continued to favor a negotiated solution even while under pressure from Duan's supporters. 
Feng finally took the step in November 1917 of removing Duan, something that, as president, he was empowered to do. The Anfu Club, though, rallied itself over the winter, and through the National Assembly simply overrode the president's dismissal, and by March 1918, Duan was reappointed premier. Upon being reappointed, he ordered the Southern Offensive to resume, doubling down on settling his problems through force. The Southern rebels again refused to back down when Duan's army reached them, though. The Northern commander on the scene actually declined to engage them, preferring negotiations to the waste and risk of open warfare, which, given how everything had gone so far, was all too reasonable. This period of political and military turbulence did serve as a mighty embarrassment to Duan, as the Southern coalition remained solidly in place and the campaign went nowhere. Moreover, the news of the additional Japanese loans broke out, and the public was not happy, to say the least, of the nation's new indebtedness, especially as it was going towards the unpopular civil war. By October 1918, Fang's term as president was running out, as he was serving Yuan Shikai's original five-year term, of which Li had also used up a portion himself. He offered to not seek another term on the condition that Duan also step aside. Duan accepted the little arrangement, as both the incoming president and premier would be pulled from the Anfu Club, and it would also get him off the hot seat in the National Assembly. Feng, for his part, genuinely entered retirement, which actually turned out to be bad news for Duan, as Sao and Wu took over as leaders of the Zhili clique, and they were much more aggressive rivals who had every intention of taking the Anhui clique down by force. If there's a lesson to be learned from this first round of warlord politics, it's that nobody was strong enough to overcome everyone else and force a national settlement. Duan, for all his aggression, only managed to get bogged down against Sun's southern government, all the while falling deeply into foreign debt and alienating everyone around. Next week, karma gets its payback as all of Duan's mistakes come back to haunt him. Not that anyone would learn a lesson afterwards, though, and he's going to be far from the only warlord to reap a bitter harvest. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.